Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Before she was a diplomat and the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations under President Obama, Samantha Power was a Pulitzer Prize-winning author and an authority on genocide around the world. Before that, she was a crusading journalist who was shining a bright light in dark corners to expose genocide and bring stories uh, from Bosnia and elsewhere to the world. Now she's the author of a riveting memoir called The Education of an Idealist, uh, and she dropped by the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago recently to talk about her work, her journey, including an extraordinarily interesting life. I sat down with her in front of a live audience at the Institute, and here is that conversation. Samantha Power, so good to have you here on a chilly winter night. I know you're from Boston, you're used to that. Absolutely, great to be here. So before we get to your story, which is so beautifully told in your, in your new book, uh, the education of an idealist. I want to talk to you about what's going on right now because there, you must have very strong feelings. As we sit here today, tomorrow impeachment hearings begin. Uh, and uh, the first witness is an ambassador, uh, Bill Taylor, who you knew and worked with on the Ukraine issue. Uh, down 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, uh, President Erdogan will be visiting. Uh, and you've had your experiences with him uh, as well. Um, so first, l l let's deal with the Ukraine uh, situation. Uh, and what, what insights can you give us into uh, Taylor and your general observations of the whole, uh, the whole issue that's led to this impeachment? Well, I guess I'd just start by noting how surprising and disappointing it is that the um, string of credible witnesses who have come forward behind closed doors and recounted in such a consistent way what the president did over and over and over again, namely uh, basically saying to a government in Ukraine, you can't have this military assistance unless you dig up dirt on my political opponent, indeed, unless you manufacture dirt on my political opponent, that that has not caused more people who are members of the president's party to um, throw up their arms and say, okay, he's crossed a line that should be uncrossable. So just stipulate that it's surprising and disappointing. You that know that most, the that there, there, there are polls that suggest that most people believe that pr all presidents do this, that this is not 
an unusual thing. It is an unusual thing. It is absolutely unusual. I mean, the idea of bringing a foreign government in any way into your own domestic political fortunes. I mean, I remember in my last year, and we'll come to Bill Taylor in a second, but my last year in office when President Trump, excuse me, when candidate Trump was running and was threatening a Muslim ban, you remember this, and I very much felt that representing the United States at the United Nations, dealing with Muslim nations, I wanted to come out very forcefully and say, this is a terrible idea, you know, this is un-American, this would be bad for our national security, it's an affront to our values. We were cautioned by our lawyers from not taking a position on something that Trump had taken a position on in the campaign because it would be seen as interference by a national security official in American politics, a violation of the Hatch Act. And that, that's at a, on an issue that was arguably undermining our national security, even though it was only uh, an American presidential candidate who was Well, you'd be much happier if you were working there now because these rules don't seem to apply as much. So. No, 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 indeed, indeed, absolutely. But, but what you see, and in a way, the, the performance um, or the testimonies of the career civil servants and foreign service officers, it's as if <clears throat> they are the keepers of the rules, they are the keepers of institutional memory, they are the keepers of the rule of law, and so they are sort of stoically going forward, their own careers jeopardized, or indeed in, in a couple cases maybe even ended, by the fact that they just refuse to say that the old rules don't apply. They refuse to say uh, that just because a president wants it enough for himself, that makes it okay. They refuse to agree with it. So Bill Taylor, what I would expect. Well, let me just say, that, that is, that's an, you said you're depressed by the one piece. This has been kind of inspiring to see these career people essentially risk their, their careers and sacrifice their careers because of principles they think are inviolable. Completely. And, and to, as a nice segue to Bill Taylor, I mean, he's completely consistent, not only on his respect for the rule of law, his belief that U.S. national security interests and the Constitution are what he is serving, but also on the substance of Ukraine policy. Bill Taylor dissented from President Obama's approach, one dimension of President Obama's approach to Ukraine, because he believed that it was in America's interests for us to be providing more significant weaponry to the Ukrainians in light of what Russia was doing to Ukraine and potentially to the international order. President more Obama didn't believe that lethal uh, weapons. He was be. skeptical. He thought that that Putin would always have uh, uh, would always be pre prepared to go further, and that it would just potentially inflame Putin to go further. Still, without actually leveling the playing field in the way that the Ukrainians wanted. What did wanted. you think about that, by the way? I was more on Taylor's side, yeah. um, but in insofar as I thought that Ukrainians were in the best position to judge the escalatory risks, because it was. The, the escalation would affect them the most, and so I was inclined to be deferential. Vice President Biden also was very much uh, uh, of that view, and that, and that Putin was getting, it just seemed in multiple theaters that he was getting more and more emboldened, uh, and then that was a place, you know, to provide very quickly defensive weaponry, uh, and then, again, to give them the means to be able to defend themselves, which required going a little further. But, again, President Obama had a very reasonable argument on his side, and there was just a healthy debate about national interest. At no point did anybody, did it enter anybody's mind, oh, this is about Barack Obama, right? It was about different good faith beliefs about 
how we would um, support the Ukrainians, how we would advance our U.S. foreign policy interests. The idea that you would, that at any point of our foreign policy discussions on any topic, that Barack Obama's own political welfare would have been driving the discussion, it's just so foreign and so unthinkable. So Taylor, uh, again, a professional's professional. I suspect he will be unflappable in the face of what comes at him. Very stoic. West Point graduate. As it happens, he's been through far worse. Fought in, fought in Vietnam. Far worse than what uh, he's going to be subjected to, you know, in the coming days. And I think he 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 recognizes that he has the law and tradition, and and fundamentally, uh, sort of a majority, if not on the narrow question of impeachment, a majority of of the people in this country agree with the core fact that your job as a public servant, as a civil servant, is to serve the Constitution and serve the country and not serve the parochial interests of one person. Defenders of the president make the argument that he he gets to make American foreign policy and therefore these unelected bureaucrats can't substitute their judgment for his judgment. That's We'll probably hear some of that in the next few days. Yeah, and you, you know, when you look back at what Trump has been doing since he came into office, sort of disparaging the, the, what he calls the deep state, referring to all civil servants, officers, foreign service officers, intelligence officers, generically as Obama holdovers. And I can tell you as one who, uh, again, uh, had a team of 150 civil service officers, foreign service officers, and intelligence service officers working for me at the US Mission to the UN, the notion of me ever thinking of them as Bush holdovers is so, again, foreign and strange. But when you look back at Trump's disparagement, you almost think he was laying a foundation for this, right? It's like, how do you disqualify the individuals who are going to be watching me day to day, my every move, they're gonna be, I'm stuck with them on my phone calls. I wish I could just make phone calls on my cell phone without anybody listening, and which I will sometimes do. Uh, only Putin will be listening, um, uh, and maybe President Xi as well, but uh, in, from China. But, but it's almost as if he was sort of aware that there were these guardians of the Constitution, these guardians of the rule of law, and so preemptively to try to, uh, again, disparage them and, and make them seem political before they'd even you know, perform their duties. So what are the long-term implications of that? First, for that group of men and women who are career uh, employees of the Foreign Service, of the State Department, some who work at the United Nations. Um, how does this impact on them and what are the implications moving forward um, for those institutions? Well, uh, I think there, there's, it's sort of complicated, I think, in the moment because on the one hand, there's a chilling effect, of course, uh, but there's been a chilling effect from day one, January 20th, 2017, I mean, anybody who has raised dissent, including even John Bolton, Trump's own hand-picked national security advisor, as soon as you disagree with the president enough times where he's like, oh, you know, I'm not getting what I want, I want people to agree with me, that isn't good for your career. That's not adaptive in this Trump. Are you surprised, by the way, to see Bolton emerge here as kind of a he, he has been extolled by a lot of the people in the process for having stood up and said, this is, this is not right, talk to the lawyers, you know, we're, call Rudy Giuliani. Yeah, I mean, I think that 
Trump had served in multiple Republican administrations. Excuse me, Bolton Bolton had served in multiple Republican administrations and had never seen anything like it and uh, probably felt while he was there that he was a guardrail. But again, when Trump gets fed up with a guardrail, he snips the guardrail and and removes the individual imposing some constraint on him. and in that sense, credit Bolton for still knowing Trump's track record prior to Bolton's arrival for continuing to raise those concerns, even knowing it probably meant that he wouldn't be in his job long. He must have known that. Um, but I think, in, in so to your question though, so I think there's a, a chilling effect, but not really a new one in the sense that anybody would have known that dissent would not be welcome in this political ecosystem. Um, on the other hand, and very much kind of uh, a very different uh, consequence of what has happened is that I think actually the Foreign Service officers, my impression is from afar, that this has been the greatest boost to their morale in seeing individuals step up sort of on their own behalf, like a little bit of an I am Spartacus moment, you know, just one after the other saying, you know, whether you're, whether you're Vinman and you're from one part of the bureaucracy or you're Fiona Hill and you're a lifelong Republic, uh, Russia specialist uh, or you're Bill Taylor and again, you've sort of been consistently uh, taking the same position over successive administrations with nothing to do with partisanship and you served your country in these different, different a variety of ways over the life of your career. This sort of range of um, Americans, of patriots coming forward in different ways, I think it has been the biggest boost to foreign service officer morale, civil servant morale probably in, in, in a very long time. And so, but I, but I don't think what you're going to see is, is you know, young people. Uh, signing, out, up, uh, signing up to be Spartacus. Yeah, I mean, signing up to be, to, 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 to think that this is an administration that is dedicated to putting the interests of the American I mean, because you do first. hear this concern about a hollowing out of the foreign service not enough young people applying. There are young people here. I hope some will. Uh, and, um, and a bunch of very senior people, experienced people leaving because they can't abide what they're seeing. So that's the longer-term consequence you asked about, short-term, long-term. So there's sort of both chill, chilling effect now and, and a boost in sort of seeing people speak. On one level, these individuals are speaking on behalf of so many, would be my guess. But longer-term, the hollowing out of expertise. I mean, when I think about the staffing that I received as UN ambassador and and the staffing that Ambassador Rice received before me and even that Ambassador Haley received after me because so basically, as I write in the book, most of the, virtually everybody stayed on who was a career employee, even though they might not have been all that pleased with the prospect of ripping up the Paris Agreement, which they'd worked on on climate change, or ripping up the Iran nuclear deal, which they might have worked on. Nonetheless, they stayed because they saw the dearth of expertise in Trump's inner circle on foreign policy and because they serve the country. So many of those people in the three years that have passed since have left, and they were Mandarin speakers and Arabic speakers and people who understood, for example, the highly technical dimensions of the North Korean nuclear program and why this sanction uh, you know, on this natural resource would have the biggest impact on the amount of hard currency the North Korean government would be able to Well, we're to friends now, so that doesn't matter. 
Exactly. Uh-huh. Yes, exactly. Uh, David, uh, outing you here as as a spe- at North Korea uh, co- <laughs> cobalt specialist. Um, but but these individuals, one by one, um, you know, they've gone from kind of grinning and bearing it uh, to feeling marginalized, but then also taking note of the fact that there were lots of parts of the world that Trump wasn't paying much attention to, where you could still do good on behalf of the American people. And then, but reaching a certain point in recent weeks, especially where they just say, you know, I can't, I just can't do it anymore. And so when someone new comes in, and I certainly hope that that will be in, in you know, uh, soon, <laughs> put it that way. Um, but when somebody new comes in, it will be not only a question of going internationally and saying, here's why we're credible again, notwithstanding the fact that this last president has ripped up America's word on Iran, on climate, on trade, to the Kurds, you know, so in, in terms of fighting ISIS, notwithstanding our huge credibility problem, we're here to tell you you can trust us. So that's going to be when you monumental travel, when you, when you travel the world, do you, do you sense that people are waiting for that? Uh, are they receptive to that? Is there a sense that something weird happened in the U.S. in 2016, but they'll fix it? Or is it, or, or are people moving on and saying the U.S. isn't going to play the role that it used to play? I think uh, two things are happening. One, I have never met more foreigners who are, who are versed in the website 538. <laughs> <laughs> So, and probably listening to the Axe Files as well. I haven't gone that one far hopes, with them. Yeah. yeah, one hopes. But, uh, but I mean, tracking Kentucky and the margin of victory and the Virginia <laughs> House of Representatives and how long it's been since both houses have been controlled by Democrats. I mean, I was just in Ireland and England, and even with Brexit, you know, consuming people in those two countries, just the amount of political literacy, so tracking, waiting, hoping, I suppose, um, on the one hand, but then there's also a huge amount of hedging going on where you see, for example, the European Union used to be prepared to criticize things like the mass detention of more than a million Uyghur in China. Now you see an unwillingness, even in kind of generic uh, condemnation statements of multiple countries to include China because of the recognition that now there's a superpower They may be the, the big block. dog on it, the it, block. Well, they are, the, they are a big dog, but right now there's, there's been such a retreat on the, on the part of the United States that there's a question about whether you just need to go along to get along. And I think the debate over 5G and Huawei and so forth reflects that, where in a normal universe where the United States is out there and credible and also has more, where a leader has more uh, support within a democratic public in a country like Germany. Trump has no support. So when, when an American leader has, you know, is polling low, it's not a popularity contest, it actually makes it harder for the leader to do deals with or be seen to be with the American American Yeah, American you know, one, one thing, uh, relative to China, um, you know, democracy is not just ours, but other, I mean, the, the Brits can watch 538, but they got some problems of their own over there. Um, and uh, democracies being challenged, I have some theories as to, to why now and what's going on, but um, it, the Chinese are now holding themselves up as a model of what can work in the 21st century, that these democratic regimes aren't agile enough, they're too burdened by their own processes to actually 
compete, and uh, they're kind of selling an authoritarian model. They are definitely, and, and that is, I mean, the, the, that is going to be the challenge of our time, these two models in competition. Right now, freedom has receded for 13 years in a row, and the greatest uh, setbacks for freedom, human rights, have occurred in established democracies like the United States and even India. Um, on the other hand, though, David, as you note, it's a, it's a scrum of sorts with these two models in competition. And if you talk to the people of Algeria or Sudan or Malaysia or Hong Kong, for that matter, who are really staring in the face, these, these two models sort of intersecting on the ground and on the streets of Hong Kong, they're not willing to kind of say, oh, well, you know, China's the, the top dog, I guess, end of history now is upon us in, in, with a different outcome than, than people had thought after the end of the Cold War. Authoritarian capitalism, that's the new model. No, people want to be able to hold their leaders accountable. They don't want to feel that sense of violation that one feels when a corrupt official demands a bribe to put in your electricity or to let you go past a stop sign or a checkpoint. Um, and so all around the world, you're seeing people voting with their feet in the interests of greater accountability and in the demand for leadership, whatever the regime type, but leadership that delivers for yeah. their citizens. And the Chinese model, for all of its uh, sort of miraculousness in terms of the number of people pulled out of poverty, it's an extremely brittle model. I mean, you know, again, imagine uh, the, the, the long-term prospects of a system in which loyalty gets rewarded more than merit, in which if you raise dissent, even internally, that could be a recipe. I mean, we've seen it, we see it now with the Trump-Bolton dynamic and, and elsewhere within our own system. But if you don't have a merit-based system, if people are afraid that by being critical uh, of a decision you have made, by the, where that sycophancy is a recipe for career success, again, we know from our own little uh, experiment in that that we're having to live through right now, that's not auspicious over time. And it's, and it's hard to imagine innovation prospering, again, over time in a climate where freedom of speech is so stultified. Yeah. So it's brittle. It's much, and what, what we need is a fair competition, right? That, that model well, will be out there. Well, in that sense, you know, how America navigates this period is going to be important to others around the world who are looking to America uh, to live up to its best, its best self. Yeah, and to your question earlier, because I think it's the core question, right, is what will happen even after Trump? Will the credibility deficit yeah. so uh, sort of over, overshadow the relief that people have to be dealing with countries whose you know, leaders tell the truth and who are not out for their own personal enrichment? I think it's complicated. I think that what I hear a lot is, look, even after Trump, you'll still always be the country that elected Trump. And so what are you going to show us that indicates that let's say we do a new Iran deal, that that deal won't be supplanted by some future leader? In other words, are you just rejecting Trump or are you rejecting Trumpism mm -hmm. and the kind of nationalism and the xenophobia and the great skepticism of international cooperation that this administration represents? And I think that's where one can't get greedy uh, you know, or complacent about the coming election, but the margin uh, of victory, if there is a victory for the opposition, for the Democrats, uh, that margin will be part of our argument for why it isn't just one man who has been rejected, the fever has broken and, and America is back. Yeah. You, uh, 
probably whoever runs against the president will have a substantial margin, but they may not get elected president. <laughs> so try and explain that to your friends over here. Exactly. But, um, That's not easy. So down the street will be President Erdogan tomorrow, just weeks after uh, he over, overran the Kurds with our uh, ascent after America withdrew, after the U.S. withdrew its, uh, its, its forces there. Um, what message does that send? Um, as we like to say in our marriage, Cass Sunstein and I, we often say in the face of the worst Former calamity. Former illustrious University of Chicago exactly, law professor. Exactly, we like to say, not ideal, uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that is our euphemism for all things. Uh, Trump and dictator related. Look, Erdogan, the president of Turkey, has been steadily centralizing power uh, within his own hands. There's plenty to talk about just in terms of the mass arrests that he has carried out, the lack of due process for his own citizens. Um, you know, the, the one area on which we had managed to cooperate was against ISIS, first under the Obama administration and then carried forward by President Trump. And on that, Erdogan's own, his, he, and by the way, this decision he made to go into northern Syria occurred in the wake of having suffered his worst electoral defeat uh, in nearly a decade, uh, an electoral defeat in Istanbul, where he actually tried to manipulate the results having lost, back to the point about freedom mm -hmm. still being championed around the world, he was defeated handily, or he was defeated by a, a sufficient margin that he should have accepted defeat, or his party was, and then he called uh, for a revote so he could manipulate the results, and he lost the second time by a margin 60 times that of the first time. So again, people are voting with their feet and at the ballot box to, not, to, to reject the kind of Erdogan model all around the world, including in Erdogan's own backyard. But I think between Turkey's own internal human rights practices, its laxness over the years also about the extremists and how they were flowing into Syria, and now this decision that privileged, I think, st uh, stirring up nationalism as a way of reconsolidating his domestic base. I think he felt himself slipping, feels himself slipping as the economy slows in Turkey and so forth. Uh, but he has now done something that actually makes it easier for ISIS, again, to uh, reconstitute itself. And he's shameless about it um, because, like Trump, his own political fortunes uh, are what he has prioritized over the good of his country and certainly over the good of the region. He's also threatening to release ISIS uh, prisoners back to their home countries in Europe. I believe uh, he's already at, begun the process. As a of way of uh, trying to push back against sanctions that have been uh, levied against Yes, uh, he, Turkey. he is a bully and he will intimidate and bully and it's this is where it's very unfortunate that Trump has done so much to alienate our allies in Europe because I know from my own, my old stomping ground at the United Nations, you know, one of the things you could count on in a crisis was that you'd look around and those countries that shared your values, you'd be a block, right? You'd, with Western democracies, you could stand together. And at a moment like that where Erdogan is using his leverage in a bullying way, you, that would be a very appropriate moment for all the Western democracies to come together, especially those who have citizens who are part of, uh, you know, the ISIS contingent that Erdogan is talking about, but to, 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 to amass our leverage so that we can push back. But instead, we're so atomized now. I mean, Europe is, as you note, looking inward, dealing with Brexit, populism, and 
and the rise of right-wing leaders as well. Um, and the United States has decided that it's more appropriate to, to show affection toward Russia and China than it is to our, to our allies. So we're not in a strong position, uh, again, to, to support countries where this blackmail is being attempted. You know, when the, when the, when there was a small number of troops that were withdrawn, but they were like the brick in the wall that was holding the, the Turks back. Um, but the argument the president made was, that's their problem, 7,000 miles away, we're not going to fight over this bloody sand. sand. Uh, and um, my guess is, and, and I think polling bears this out, there's an audience for that here in a country that is weary of foreign engagements. Uh, it's been 18 years. 18? 18 in Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah in Afghanistan. Uh, and, uh, and after that, Iraq. Uh, trillions of dollars of losses, thousands of, 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 of lives lost, many more impacted. Um, this, is a, this is a political reality, uh, and it's one that President Obama was concerned about. Yeah. Look, I mean, I think, would that, that Trump even kept his commitments to his base that wants to bring the troops home? I mean, Trump has increased our troop presence, sending troops to Saudi Arabia, even now sending troops, it seems, back to Syria, but just for the oil and not uh, yeah. with any regard for the people. So it's like, we don't care about the, our allies who gave up 11,000 lives. Exactly. We don't. And, and, and the, again, the, 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 the longer-term problem with what he's done now uh, with our anti-ISIS coalition is that one way of responding to the fatigue that exists on the left and the right in this country, I mean, really in the public as a whole, and especially among the families who've been asked to bear this burden more than the rest of us, but one way to respond to that and yet still prevent terrorist threats to the United States is to outsource some of the ground fighting to local forces, right. whether the Iraqis in Iraq, where you have an army, or uh, what we did in Syria, unable to, to partner with a regime that gasses its people, is to partner with these local ground forces, the Syrian Defense Forces. Yeah, but forces. they're not going to come with you. But my point you know, is, again, right. now once you've broken your word, this outsourcing model, which is all, has downsides as well, uh, because you're, you don't have complete command and control, and it's not like these forces have been trained mm -hmm. you know, for a long time, according to the Geneva Conventions. And again, there are lots of perils associated with the larger strategic approach uh, that we, we, the United States, have shifted to in recent years. But the strategic, there's now a big hole in the center of it, which is who's going to volunteer to die for land that they didn't want in the first place. They went to Raqqa and dismantled the caliphate, not because those were historic Kurdish lands, but because they were going to get something in return. And so I think, again, if you, if you stay true to that idea of bring the troops home, yet still protect U.S. national security, there has to be, you have to have partners to do so. But in order for partners to step forward, there's going to have to be trust. We'll come back uh, to this. I want to talk about this book, this remarkable book that you've written. You won a Pulitzer Prize uh, earlier in your career for a book called A Problem from Hell about genocide uh, around the world and, and the response of the US and other institutions to it, or a lack of response. Um, and one of the reasons it was a uh, was a great book was not just the rigor of, of the argument, but also the power of the storytelling. You're a great storyteller, but now you've written a, your own story. What is the difference between writing your own story and really diving deeply into your own experiences and writing about other people's experiences? 
Um, I don't even know where to start. I mean, it was so much harder to write about myself. In part, I basically, I don't know how you felt when you wrote your memoir, but a large part of me kind of feels you shouldn't write a memoir unless you've brokered Middle East peace. <laughs> and last I checked, I didn't manage that. Uh, and, um, and just- I didn't and, see that as a criticism in any of the reviews. So. <laughs> no, 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 yeah. interesting, no, it's funny how, Condition we are for the narcissism of uh, Ameri former American government officials to come out and tell their own stories as if it's the most obvious. Yeah, but your thing story is a very human story. I mean, that's it, human. it actually, yeah. the, the, the public piece of your story is fascinating. The private piece yeah. is just really moving. You're, you're an immigrant, you grew up in Ireland, uh, you spent the first nine years of your life in Ireland, yep. uh, much of it in a tavern. Uh, I call them pubs, David. Pubs. <laughs> I'm translating for the audience. Tavern. Uh, Is that the Hyde Park? We call them a Tavern. bar. Call them in a bar. A bar. We're in a bar. So uh, your dad uh, was a, a heavy drinker. Yes. This was the source of tension between your parents. And ultimately, your, your mom took you and your brother and fled. Um, and there were scenes where you went back. There was one particularly arresting scene where your parents were arguing about whether you were going to come home with your mom back to the U.S. or stay with your dad. Mm. And you were forced to choose, stand there in the door and choose. Yeah. Uh, it kind of ripped me up. Me too. <laughs> to read that. No, I understand. But yeah. I mean, to have to relive that when you wrote it must have been... Painful yeah. and difficult. You know what was really hard is um, that the truth is what ended up happening in the wake of that scene is my father died very suddenly, um, or at least for what to me was very suddenly, after we left Ireland and I, in effect, chose my mother in that moment. He began drinking even more and his alcoholism got the better of him and he really just alone deteriorated terribly. And so when I got word that he died, it, it, of course, I felt, and I write about this in the book, I felt responsible in one way, but I also, it made me savor the people that I had in my life who were still alive, like just be so grateful that my mother, I still had my mother, and we were talking about this earlier, just every time the phone rang at a weird time, assuming that maybe something terrible had happened to, even to my mother, and so it just made me, um, appreciative of what I have, but it also made me not ask too many questions about the past because I didn't want to cause, you know, to, to, to drudge all of this up. My mother felt guilty enough about what ended up happening with my father. Um, and so this book, in a way, all these years later, ended up being an excuse for me to go back to my father's girlfriend at the time that he died, to his sister, to the people at the pub. You know, like, guys, what were you thinking? The, you know, you mean the nothing tavern. to be yeah. at the tavern. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so in a way, writing the book, uh, it, it ends up being a great blessing for me because I got to dig into questions where even all these years later, I kind of was feeling responsible. And only when you, when you no matter, even after years of therapy, still have, a, have that sense that so many grown-up children have that they could have done more. And only by really digging into it do you, and especially now having two young children of my own, do I, do I sort of really, I think, fully appreciate how young I was and how little agency a child has. Um, but, you know, but for choosing to, to tell this story in as 
honest a way as I can, in as accessible a way as I can, particularly for young people. I mean, just traveling around these last weeks talking to young people in particular about the book, I'd expected to spend a ton of time talking about you know, Syria and the question of whether I resign or not resign or of the Ebola response or climate change. And it's amazing how many people now come at the story you know, telling me about something that they felt responsible for in their childhood and how much they had struggled to forgive themselves. Or I write a lot about my anxiety, which is something I yeah. carry, which of course, as a you know, seemingly fully functional uh, person, people are very surprised by. And then that opens up it's you, a you, you have essentially discuss. panic attacks where yeah. you would find it hard to breathe. Yeah. Lungers, you call it. L lungers, 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 exactly. Um, okay, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not, well, I have to get all the, this terminology down uh, yeah, in advance it's a, it, here. It, it, it's okay, it's a made up word that my college boyfriend invented for the intense feeling of claustrophobia I had, um, which he of course took personally, but, um, but was more, <laughs> more product of, of some of the demons I was carrying and, and so Lungers, I mean, I was just in Ireland last week and I did a, uh, an interview with some women and we were talking policy and women's empowerment, LGBT rights and so forth. The interview ended and two of the women like, are like, I had Lungers and I never knew what to call it before. And it, because it isn't quite panic attack, although that's what it sounds like to the, the people who don't have Lungers. Uh, but it's just a sort of constriction in your chest that, that, that where, you, where you just feel kind of things closing in. And so as one who's out being a war correspondent and an activist and a Harvard professor and somehow managed to you know, uh, be part of the Obama administration, I think people don't expect all of this to, yes. be, to be on the page. And what's nice is I think it has the chance at least to render this world that you and I have been privileged to be a part of more accessible. You know, if you're just the sum of your the CV you happen to amass by you know the middle of your career, the end of your career, that's one uh, point of entry for a young person. But if you're all of the doubts and issues you confront along the way, I think that's a much more, potentially at least, much more relatable story. So that, the, that was why I thing, opened up that much. The other thing I appreciated was you also opened up about, there is a certain pathology to power and being around power and you know, even in a healthy White House, uh, not to make invidious comparisons, but even in a healthy White House, um, you know who gets into what meeting and whose idea gets adopted and how the principal, in this case the president, reacts to people in the room and so on. You captured all of that and how one interprets it. Um, and I think that that was really valuable uh, to give people a sense of what it is actually like uh, to be in those places. Anyway, you, you, you moved uh, first to Pittsburgh, then to Atlanta. You became kind of a jock, uh, played a lot of sports. You're a fanatical baseball fan uh, to this day. Um, you went to Yale, and you were sort of drifting along and going down. You had an internship, I think, at a TV station or anything? Doing, CBS, yeah. Doing sports. And you saw the scene in Tiananmen Square. Yeah, I was uh, taking notes on a Braves-Giants game, San Francisco Giants. These were the lean years for the Atlanta Braves. Many errors were committed, and my job was to sort of track the errors in order to cut the sports highlights for the evening news as an intern. Uh, occasional home run or a good play as well, uh, dance in the stands. And there I am, 
and it seemed the most important thing I could be doing. It was a dream internship for a public high school kid who you know, suddenly found herself at Yale and was doing, I was doing sports play-by-play -play and I was on a sports radio talk show and here, there I was that summer. But on the, in the little video booth I was in, there were multiple screens with the CBS feeds from all around the world and on the feed from Beijing came the footage of Chinese tanks moving towards student protesters and mowing them down. In, in this was in June of 1989. And, you know, again, in the movie version, right, it, that's the moment you say, one day I want, I'm going to go forth, I'm going to become a human rights lawyer, I'll get into politics, I'll get to represent the United States at the UN and stand up to bad guys and... But that's, I think, not human nature. I mean, for me to have... That would have been pretty prescient. If yeah, well, well, but I mean, even... Well, no, because you meet young people who, who want to be UN ambassador already, and I'll say, why? You know, what's, what's the thing you want to do when you get to that place? Because uh, that's a more reliable driver. And so all I had was... I didn't even have the, the... Again, the notion that I would go into public service. I was still on my sports track, but I did have the sense of... Um, I think I need to learn more about the world outside of sports. And, and really the only difference that, what well, was an epiphany, but the only difference it made was I went back and I ended my subscription to USA Today, nothing against USA Today, but at the time I subscribed to USA Today and I used to take the red section, which is the sports section, I think purple is entertainment and green <laughs> yeah. is money, and I would shake the rest of the newspaper into the recycling bin and just w read my sports section and so I went back and I got a subscription to the New York Times. And again, just there was such, I think, appropriate humility because I knew nothing about what was happening in the world. But I would underline the New York Times, like the name of the world leader, and I would kind of quiz myself and I would try to keep track of historical events. I knew geography because every Irish person carries with them an innate knowledge of geography in their DNA, because they know they're gonna have to leave at some point, probably. <laughs> uh, so I knew geography, but I didn't know, I didn't know anything. And so what, I tell that story in the book, not because it's always gonna be some moment of yeah. I see an injustice and therefore I'm gonna go fix it. The moment more likely leads to something much more incremental, yes. right? Which was just an opening to the rest of the world. And then as I got more educated, gradually, but it took years, I, I began to think maybe there's a place for me to do something small, and then that ended up becoming journalism. You took an internship after graduating at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and that was, that was a watershed event in your life. You, you met lifelong mentors, uh, and you started focusing on the situation in Bosnia. Yeah, I think that was more where the pathways became evident. So. Again, a lot of people today see big problems and they think, oh, but what can one person do? So they think, I wanna do something, uh, but what can one person do? And what was amazing about the Carnegie Endowment was I was working for a man who had been a career US diplomat. He had been, in fact, US ambassador in Turkey, which we were talking about earlier, but helping uh, convince George H.W. Bush to set up the no-fly zone to protect the Kurds of Northern Iraq. So he was a complete doer and he had an actual experience of harnessing uh, US leadership to protect people. And so that was my first exposure in my early 20s. He was consumed with what was happening in Bosnia. And just by being kind of his coffee pourer, he called me Susan for the entire time. I interned for him practically, might still call me Susan, but uh, 
and I'm still very close to him. But you know, <laughs> it wasn't like I was doing such important work by any means. But I was in watching him. You know, I was hearing about a you know that was a life, right? And I, it wasn't one I thought about going into to be a diplomat. And I mean, it would have been so grandiose to think in those terms. Then there was the think tank life of people who tried to be analytic in, in a kind of contemporary way. Then there were historians who were passing through, there were op-ed writers, there were war correspondents, there were aid workers, there were people helping refugees. So, and I think that's really, oh, it's one of the great things about the institute you've set up is that you bring, when, when people can show, can model these pathways, then if you're a person thinking, oh, I'd like to do something, suddenly you have a place to kind of attach that impulse, like, well, maybe I could do. And so, in my case, it was the journalists who were part of a world that seemed the most accessible to me because I'd been a sports journalist, so at least I knew kind of how to write a lead and to write on deadline. Um, the fact that I'd covered women's volleyball and then was seeking to become a war correspondent was a, was a detail. A leap, yeah. A small detail, but, but it did matter that I at least, you know, that that was at least the only pathway it seemed like I had an even plausible case to make that I could do something. So I went over and became a war correspondent. Yes, but I think the way you became a war correspondent no. is, is worthy of note. Uh, actually, you stole a note <laughs> in a way. You, you went into, at night, you went into the, you, Foreign Policy Magazine was affiliated with the Institute. You went in at night, stole a, a, some stationery of the editors and wrote a note asking uh, for credentials for you for their, for their correspondent, for, Samantha Power. Exactly, or Susan Power, whatever it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In that, that case, it yeah. needed to be Samantha, but, but yes. Uh, in which, it, which, I mean, in a sense, uh, being an ex-journalist, I appreciate the resourcefulness that you, that you showed, but, uh, but uh, wow. Uh, so I grappled in an ethically challenged <laughs> moment. I'm not sure... Uh, again, that including that particular part of my, my arc uh, was advised or advisable, but I included it because it spoke to kind of that frame of mind I was in at that time, which we see now, you know, in young people on other causes like climate, you know, just that, that purposefulness where you're sort of blind to, again, the, the, the larger dimensions of, of what you're up to. But I did... I got. I had a guilty conscience, um, and I had a press pass. Yes. Uh, and which was more important to you? <laughs> well, I <sp> <laughs> so I you know. got over there, and you essentially fell in with a group of war correspondents. You ultimately ended up in Sarajevo when it was un under siege. Mm -hmm. um, tell me about how long were you over there again? Two years, two plus years. Yeah. Talk talk about that experience, and 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 how did that experience shape your life? Well, it was a moment where this was, would have been 93 to 95 was my first two years, then I went back later. Um, but it was a time when the Balkans seemed the anomaly. Remember, the wall had fallen in yes. Berlin. We just celebrated the 30-year anniversary. The Soviet Union had collapsed. The end of history was nigh, according to Frank Fukuyama and others. It looked like liberal democracy was on a, I mean, this is why I never, never view even the, the challenges we're having with democracy now is irreversible. You know, everything is contingent, I believe. But this looked like an inexorable march of freedom and so forth. And then there was Bosnia. And you know, when I look back now, actually what we saw in the Balkans is a, is a preview of, of what we see today in so many parts of the world. You know, uh, people, in that case the Serb 
population within the larger Yugoslavia feeling as though they were being left behind, that they were not being seen, they'd had the privilege, and now a changing world was, was bringing other ethnicities um, to the fore. There, was more, there were more demands for equality, more concessions to equality. And they, not all of them of course, but some decided to throw their lot in with a nationalist xenophobe. Um, and it's sort of surreal when, when, you know, I just never would have imagined that those, that such parallel dynamics could take hold here that was in no one's mind. In a, in a, it was a kind of overly, in retrospect, overly triumphant moment, too triumphant, um, because I also think it didn't, it was a moment in which policymakers weren't really taking note of how aggrieved Russia was to be looked past uh, in that sort of post-war order, and some of that has come home to roost. But for me, it was just, you know, I wasn't thinking any of these grand thoughts. I was just learning how to be a correspondent. I was embraced by particularly the female uh, war correspondents who were all freelancers just like me. Um, and learning about how the UN worked or didn't work. Peacekeepers were doing some heroic work feeding people, but also stood idly by in the face of the largest massacre in Europe in, in 50 years. And so all of that was so formative and really, I, I think, left me with an impulse that I carried with me even to become a UN ambassador of always wanting to be out in the field, talking to people, trying to understand better how the policies that were crafted in some sterile conference room, whether the Situation Room or the Security Council, how those policies were affecting people on the ground. Um, you, uh, yeah, you, sh you also were alerting the world to, uh, you were a lens on an ethnic cleansing that was going on there that was really uh, profound. You ended up uh, going to Harvard Law School um, from there. W why did you do that? I think I, when I first got to Bosnia, I felt the power of the pen. It, um, it, and, and again, it, it wasn't obvious that I, it would work for me to just go with a fake press pass and become a war correspondent, but it, it worked. And in it working over time, I got to write for more and more influential publications like the Washington Post. I became their stringer, their special correspondent there, The Economist, publications like that. And the combination of writing for Bill Clinton, you know, by, by the time I was writing for the Washington Post, and time passing, I began to think, well, gosh, I'm, I couldn't get a better audience, right? I'm writing for the person who every day is deciding how much to invest in diplomacy, whether or not to enforce the UN Security Council resolutions that have been passed, whether to let NATO planes just fly overhead, or whether to rescue people. And the more time that passed and the more deflated actually the local people became, the more they started slamming their doors in our faces. As it, At one point we were ambassadors of hope and then we became kind of ambassadors of impotence or something. Mm -hmm. And so as they grew frustrated, as I began to feel like nothing I wrote, no matter how, even on a good day, if I wrote movingly, if I felt like I, I, I you know, that I bridged the distance somehow between what I was seeing and what I knew my readers' lives were like, which was so different, and yet, it just felt like it was falling on deaf ears. So I went to law school thinking maybe there's a path there. If you can't prevent the Srebrenica massacre, at least now there are these new institutions being built like the, the Hague, the Hague War Crimes Court. You could, if I, over time, could become a prosecutor, could hunt down the bad guys and make sure that at least 
the victims would see their perpetrators face justice. So that was kind of, to the degree that there was a logic to it, it was, it was rooted in that idea of getting something tangible, more tangible than the pen, uh, to do something about, about what I was seeing. But ironically, you, while you were there, the pen did not stop. I know. You wrote a book. You, the, this, this book we mentioned, A Problem from Hell, you, you, uh, you couldn't find a publisher for a while for this book. No, and again, I tell that story of just, it was crazy. I, I had this wonderful agent who uh, I approached, I wrote a paper actually for a class, um, and the paper, I, I went to write a paper about American responses to genocide, and I went to the library and, there, and they expected to find 10 books on American responses to genocide, there were no books. And so the paper kept expanding. I started calling people who'd been in the US government, because having been a journalist, that was always my impulse, is to talk to the people actually making decisions. And eventually the paper sort of grew and grew. And then when it was like 80 pages as a paper, I thought, well, it's not that far from being a book. And so I did write the book. And I got a publisher initially for the proposal idea, or for the paper, the school paper. But then four plus years later, so it was a five-year project total, they saw this big, thick, dark thing <laughs> arriving and and my agent was like it's great and I've read it and this works and it flies and I was like it flies but it's long and she's like yeah but it flies it's good we're, we're good and I thought it I thought I'd figured out a way to tell a difficult story through again these upstanders these Americans who try which to which is a, a phrase that you coined, coined. as it I wouldn't have known I'd coined upstanders it upstanders yes. versus bystanders correct and since most of us if we're lucky, we will find ourselves maybe hopefully not perpetrators, and if we're very lucky, not victims. But on ordinary issues of justice and injustice, it's that continuum that's the most relevant, I think, to how we live our lives. Bystander, upstander, and we're both hopefully, um, or I mean, anyway, that, that seemed like more where most of us, that's the space we inhabit. So my agent said, great, we'll send it to the publisher we have, and then the publisher we had said, it's really long and really about genocide. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, but the, but the upstanders, you know, they're, they're the screamers, they're, they're, these characters are incredible. And they're like, it's really long and it's really about genocide. So my agent who's- Didn't very, lend itself to a musical. No, it did not. No. But my agent's very British. And so I have, I tell the story in the book of, of we, I had an answering machine way back then. And I would come home uh, from work, because by then I'd graduated from law school and was working, and there'd be the blinking light, and I'd run to my answering machine, and she would there'd be some, either, usually more than one, but she'd say, Houghton Mifflin, pass. Farrar Strauss, pass. <laughs> Random House, pass. And it was just, pick it up, pass. And it just, the, as an Irish person, the British accent, you know, has some, but now it's forever associated with this you know, I don't even know how many publishers rejected it, but in the end, this tiny sub-imprint of basic books called the New Republic Books, uh, the kind of owner-publisher effectively did me a favor and published just a few, I'm not sure how many copies, but probably a few hundred copies, and then it had this life, mainly yeah. because of you did him a You did him a favor by winning the Pulitzer Prize. I mean, that was the, the shocking coda, yeah, to the... But, um, and one of the people who read the book was Barack Obama. You started a center on these issues at Harvard. Yeah. Um, but in 2005, you got a call from then Senator Obama. Yeah, and, and you, David, will appreciate just how compelling Obama was for all the reasons you know as the first person 
of great prominence to sign on with him, but, but you'll appreciate that I've been waiting uh, on a waiting list for, I don't write about this in the book, but I've been on a waiting list for Red Sox season tickets for 10 years, and I just got my package. And yeah, exactly. And it wasn't even, it wasn't like 81 games or anything, but it was just like a, it was a, a dozen games, and it was a, you know, whatever, shared with a bunch of other people. And that's when Barack Obama's office reaches out. And that's the context in which I'm having that dinner with him that I write about in the book, where uh, I go down and meet him. He's read A Problem from Hell. What's so interesting is that he reads the book. He's very interested in Rwanda and how 800,000 people could have died without us, even the US government, even having a cabinet meeting or a National Security Council meeting, principals meeting. But he sees Rwanda as like the flip side of the Iraq coin, whereas a lot of people think, you know, you think non-intervention, intervention gone awry. And he looked at the, he was like, you know, these have in common the fact that human consequences are not prioritized at the highest levels of government, and what would it take to change that? So I'm listening to this first-term senator from Illinois, you know, just look, sort of thinking all of this through in such a fresh way. There were no taboos, I love that about him and the sort of fresh approach he, he brought. I mean, it's not like he'd been thinking about foreign policy in Springfield so much, right? He thought about it as a young person in, in college and always had read about it, but it was this just fresh approach and then this ambition of it has to be that we can do better and do differently. So as I'm kind of taken by him and at this dinner, which ended up being like a four-hour dinner, um, and I'm thinking to myself, will I just, propose that I come and work in his Senate office. I'm thinking that, Red Sox tickets, that, <laughs> Red Sox tickets. I you told know. you she was a fanatical that, sports fan. But anyway, so I, and on the other side with the Red Sox tickets was what a lot of women have in their head, mainly, I'm sure men do too to some extent, but I hear it more from women, but that kind of, the, the ickiness of putting yourself forward, you know, that, of that feeling of like, what if I, you know, and I just, as I was weighing all of that, and I, and I write about my thought bubble kind of as I'm, as the dinner's going on and on and on, I'm like, well, maybe this is my opening, and then maybe, ah, it just sound too tacky, and, and so you then wanted, we're, we're like, You wanted to carve out for games? Is that what you want? No, no, but just even to say, maybe I have something to offer, just oh, I sounded see. so pompous. I know, you didn't even understand. That's good, like, you're such a guy. I'm still you're thinking about the You're such a guy, like, every woman is like, no, no, oh, no, yeah, no, totally. I I'm thinking the Sox, like, what? The, Baseball. The, the, Sox won, the Sox won the World Series the year before. That's what I was thinking uh, yeah, well, about. That's fair. That's very yes. fair. Um, but, 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 you, uh, but anyway, but you, we was on the street. Like we were, I mean, it was, you know, it was my, like my chance was slipping away. And so finally I took the plunge and, and engaged in self-promotion of the old school sort. And, and, and it paid off. And I went to work for him. Not a fun year in the Senate. Not a, not a great, wasn't a good time. It was the least productive Congress since the do-nothing Congress in Harry Truman's time. And the do-nothing Congress, I only realized this when I researched the book, produced the Marshall Plan. Uh, it was that very Congress that, that got that through. So it was a very, you know, it was the beginnings of the, of the kind of polarization and, and divisions we see now. And I think, I mean, you'd know better than me, but that was a major reason, I think, why Obama decided to take the risk and yeah. throw his hat in the ring, because it wasn't as if he could see a path in the Senate to make the kind of difference he wanted to make. Now I have to leap forward here. So I'm gonna skip the part where Obama runs for president and I uh, had to fire you from the campaign. That's good, yes. I, I think that's in both of our Yeah, interests. so just in fairness, Sam was a little outspoken 
uh, about our opponent and future Secretary of State. Um, and so we, we had to take a little time out <laughs> until we could safely bring her back because we wanted her brilliance. Uh, and you did come back and, uh, and you worked in the National Security Council for four years. Uh, and then you, were, you, you became ambassador to the United Nations. Um, and there you confronted both the limits of what you could do uh, in the face of all the horrific things that you had written about, that you saw in the world, uh, and you also saw where it worked and where you could make a difference. And to talk about reconciling those mm. two. Yeah, I mean, maybe just, I, you know, I think what gets the most attention, of course, are the, the, the heartbreaking issues we confronted, like Syria, of course. And for someone like me who'd written A Problem From Hell, that's the place that most people, you know, sort of want to take Obama's second term, the story of Obama's second term, certainly the, the, the story of my service, and it's very reasonable for... Because I you think. strongly disagreed with the decision not to bomb after the uh, red line was crossed well, I mean, and Obama, not to set up a no-fly yeah. zone uh, later in the yeah, conflict. But, but I think what I try to do in the book, which I think is not done enough in our current politics, um, but is bring people into the dilemmas there. So yes, mm -hmm. I had a different, I would have gone, I would have incurred more risk because of the costs as they were unfolding in Syria. And he was um, concerned about the lesson he took away from Iraq uh, was don't get into conflicts that you can't see the way out of, that don't become mired, that the, he felt the country couldn't take another conflict like that. And to your point earlier about the country he was governing was the, is, the, is continuous with the country that we're in today where people are really skeptical that U.S., especially U.S. military action when uncoupled with a larger strategy, and we, ha we would have had a larger strategy in the way that I think the current administration doesn't in just about anything, but, um, but I think what I try to show is his position is very reasonable. I yeah. mean, he's Barack Obama. The, 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 the plight of Syrian civilians was tearing him apart, I believe. Most of my most difficult clashes, most difficult conversations with him that sometimes became clashes were over Syria, where he'd say things like, we've all read your book, Samantha, you know, in a, in a quite an unusual, dismissive, for him, I think, way, and in front of other people, which is not ideal. Uh, uh, but then he'd quickly recover and, you know, was savvy yeah. about group dynamics and knew that if he left it there, you would lose he, your voice. I could lose my voice in meetings that he was, where he wasn't in to buck me up. And, and he knew that anybody standing up on behalf of human rights, even under a, a administration led by him, that there's a lot of gravity cutting toward short-term expediencies, toward lots of military assistance to, to different regimes, irrespective of their human rights performance. And so he would have wanted me to maintain my credibility. So I tell... My point is, it was complex. I would have incurred more risk. We didn't. I understand Because, why. I mean, in a sense, your, your lifelong passion was to protect people from the kinds of, the, uh, of horrors that we were seeing Correct. on a massive scale Correct. in Syria. Correct. But, again, at no point did I think his position was unreasonable. Mm -hmm. Not shockingly, because Barack Obama is eminently reasonable. Moreover, 
I still felt, even on Syria, that there was good that I could do as UN ambassador, whether getting humanitarian assistance to some pocket of territory by working with the Russian ambassador or getting, trying to get a Syrian human rights lawyer out of jail. So I tried to fight within the internal process to get us to <coughs> leverage our diplomacy and, and be more assertive, but failing, there was plenty to be done. And, and just you asked the question in both the constraints and the possibilities, because I think the possibilities and what we were able to do get a lot less attention. So I think it's worth noting that in being part of his administration, you know, I had the un unbelievable privilege of working for a president who bucked the domestic politics where Democrats and Republicans were <coughs> united in having a full-fledged freakout about Ebola. And what Obama did with projections of 1.4 million people getting infected in West Africa is he sent 3,000 troops and health workers into the eye of the storm, empowering me, John Kerry, our whole team, to then build a global coalition, leveraging, again, that American investment. And you, you put the question well, because this is an example of when the international system works, this is how it works. You have to have a catalytic first mover who's willing to put a lot of skin in the game, and then you have to have a lot of credibility and trust in the international system to then draw upon the resources of other countries, because it doesn't make it easy for them to send their health workers into the eye of the storm. And so we were able to get Cuba to send their medical Africa health corps, Malaysians to send tens of thousands of pairs of rubber gloves, the Brits to take lead on Sierra Leone as we took lead in Liberia. And it was really, it's not, it was not a perfect uh, you know, case study. Nothing ever will be in the world that is so messy. But it was a great example of US leadership being leveraged to actually lower the burden in the end to the United States. The Paris Climate Treaty, again, it was just meant to be the floor of our commitments. Um, it was meant to be something that hopefully we would build a successor to maybe even within five years. But it was the first time China and India were willing to put themselves in a common framework with industrialized countries who they feel, not without reason, got to develop and pollute and emit um, and then turn around before China and India have brought their populations out of poverty and turn and say, okay, now you have to uh, do things our way, you know, and even though we got to go to, to you know, create a, a middle class, you don't get to fully do so, you have to make these sacrifices. But we got them to do that because the stakes of climate uh, change are so high. And indeed, one of the stories I tell is an, an under-heralded uh, decision that Obama made was even though it looked like Hillary Clinton was had a decent lead in the run-up to the 2016 election, in late 2015, Obama said, we have to inoculate the Paris Climate Treaty from a potential Trump or Republican victory because Trump had threatened to pull out of Paris. Um, and that means we have to bring that treaty into international force, into make it international law more quickly than any major international environmental treaty. So Kyoto, I think, took nine years. Other treaties of that nature have taken more than a decade. And in 11 months, basically, we got 55% of the countries of the world who accounted for more than 55% of the emissions in the world to ratify the treaty so that in the event Trump was elected, he may be able to pull out of Paris, which he began to try to do or has done, I guess, uh, on Monday of this week, although it won't take effect until election week next year. 
Um, but he could do that, but in so doing, he couldn't unravel the entire international agreement. But th these are just a couple examples. There are dozens of examples yeah. that don't get the headlines, you know, and that's one of the reasons, because they don't get the headlines, the despair about whether America can do good in the world, I think really is higher now than it has been since, since the Second World War. Before we go, I have to ask you about one of the most poignant uh, relationships in this book is between, I think people would be surprised to hear, between you and Vitaly Cherkin, the, the uh, Russian ambassador to the UN. And tensions between our countries grew throughout your uh, tenure there. The last speech you made at the UN was this blistering denunciation of the Russians for enabling the slaughter of Syrians. Um, but, and yet you had a relationship that, uh, that uh, continued throughout. Uh, talk about that. Yeah, well, what, one of the people I quote in the book is someone I know Obama also uh, likes, Reinhold Niebuhr, and he has this line about um, always seeing the error in your own truth and the truth in your opponent's error. And believe me, with the Russian ambassador, it was hard to, to keep my inner Niebuhr uh, in line, but Part of what explains the relationship, which I, um, you know, go into at some length, is I, I do think if we cease to be able to see the humanity in our foes, that there is something in there to work with. I think, it, like, I'm not sure where we go. I'm not sure where, how we mend things. I'm not sure how we cooperate on things. So some of it was just a basic um, sort of belief that we just have to keep trying. And he gave me lots of reasons to try because he never gave up on US-Russian cooperation, even when it meant risking something, I think, for him in front of Putin, because Putin was tracking what he was doing at all times. So every time he's like, Samantha and I have hatched this compromise, right? that's a risk for him within his own system. So the fact that he was willing to continue to try to draw water from the stone um, is one of the things that made me keep trying as well. But the second thing I'd say is that it was pragmatic and not just this kind of metaphysical belief about you know, needing to aspire to find some commonality even uh, in those with whom we disagree. But the other was just functional, which is the whole Security Council kind of breaks down if Russia returns to Cold War form and or, for that matter, if China decides uh, to, to block uh, action in the Security Council on a routine basis on behalf of uh, vulnerable people. And so I didn't really have the luxury either of walking away. I think that the relationship is instructive on one level in the sense that we're at a very polarized time domestically. I don't know that we can liken it to US-Russian relations of those times, but sometimes it feels that way, like very, very hard um, in this era to, to again, find the error in one's own truth and the truth in one's opponent's error. Um, and I'm probably, I was probably better at it with the Russian ambassador <laughs> perhaps than I, than I am today with, with yeah. uh, the occupant of the White House, but, um, but I still try. And if there's something good that happens that the Trump White House does, you know, I try to you know, not let my overall um, uh, you know, disappointment and, and deep, deep, deep concern about the direction of the country interfere with an ability to at least see that there might be something there to work with, but it's, but it's hard. Yeah. Well, Samantha Power, 
my friend, I'm proud of your service, and not just your service in government, but your service as a, as a, as a journalist, as an advocate uh, for people so desperately in need of one. Uh, you've made an enormous difference in the world, and I highly recommend your book, uh, The Education of an Idealist. It is a, it's a great read and a wonderful story. So thank you, Thank David. you for being here. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.